Some of you may be familiar with George Carlin, who was a comedian. He grew up in Catholic school in New York. He was a man who was in many ways profound and in all ways profane. And he said this in a little rift on religion. He said, I want you to know something. This is sincere. I want you to know that when it comes to believing in God, I really tried. I really, really tried. I tried to believe that there is a God who created each of us in his own image and likeness, who loves us all very much and is keeping a close eye on things. I really tried to believe that. But I got to tell you, the longer you live, the more you realize as you look around that something is fouled up. This is PG here, not rated R or worse. Something is wrong here. War, disease, death, destruction. Here comes a litany of dangers. Hunger, filth, poverty, torture, crime, corruption, and ice capades. You young people, that was a sort of a Disney ice skating spectacle that went around the country in the 80s. Something is definitely wrong, and it's not just because of Disney. This is not good work. If this is the best that God can do, I am not impressed. Results like these do not belong on the resume of a supreme being. This is the kind of stuff you'd expect from an office temp with a bad attitude. And just between me and you, in any decently run universe, this guy would have been out on his all-powerful bohonkus a long time ago. And by the way, I say this guy because I firmly believe, looking at these results, that if there is a God, it has to be a man. Shout out to the ladies, how about it? Do you hear the dismay there? I've tried, he said. I tried hard to believe in God. I tried to take the words that were taught me from the supposed origins of all that we see and know that God created us in his image and his likeness, that we're not just unattended vermin, that God's keeping an eye on things. But when I look at it, I think this planet, in the wake of Ferguson and in indictments not handed down and in racist anger and broken down families and bodies that don't work as they should and minds that are in a severe state of need for repair. This cannot be the resume of a divine being. This is more like the work of a bad office temp employee with a bad attitude. Carlin, like many of us, made one fatal flaw, one fatal error, is that he merely looked at what the world was coming to. But he did not do what we're urged to do here in the letter called the letter to the Hebrews. He did not do what Carl Henry said the early Christians did. 
He says this, Carl Henry, an eminent theologian in the 20th century. He said, the early Christians did not say, look at what the world is coming to. They said, look at what has come into the world. There's a big difference. Not look at what the world is coming to, but look at what has come into the world. Today we're going to talk about what has come into the world. We are in a season we call Advent, which means coming. We celebrate the first coming of God into the world. We look forward to the second coming of God into the world, which will be much different and without disguise and with repair. And in between, we live in this overlap of time where something fantastic has come into the world, but all that he is intent on doing has not yet been done. And it's easy if you start to imagine that if God really loves us and if God is really on the job, then sorrows will be completely silenced and all troubles will themselves be troubled. If you think all that must happen now, then you will become dismayed. But if you give attention to the ways that God has spoken, you realize that we have someone to listen to and someone to expect from, then you can keep believing what will give you hope and what will give you resilient endurance as you make it through. It's a call this season to Advent attentiveness, taken from the author of Hebrews who says we must Pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If you look around while you're driving, as I only do, you will easily drift if you're not paying careful attention to what you're doing, you will drift. And we are given away here. We're giving away here to say, Not look at what the world is coming to, but look at what has come into the world. And I'd like to think about that with you for just a moment. So first this, we have someone to listen to. In the past, we're told God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. In many times and in various ways. But in these last days, we're told he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Let me tell you about this son, says the author. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. I'd like you to pause for just a minute and think about this. The way that the Bible talks about Jesus coming into the world is as God's making a proclamation, as God embodying a message, that the coming of Jesus says something in a shout or else a whisper, depending on how you're hearing it, that must be paid attention to. God's been speaking all along. But just like in our day, it's very easy to pay attention to lots of other voices. The prophets, which if you turn your Bible backwards some, you'll notice them. They have odd names like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. 
Isaiah and Hosea, Micah, Habakkuk, which is probably what you're going to name your next son if you don't want them to be liked. These are people that had a tremendous burden of God's perpetual concern for the world. They were not popular. Not a one of them ever sought out this job, but God visited them and made his concerns known to them. He was never an abstraction to them. He was a presence that they couldn't shake. They were drunk on God, says Frederick Buechner, and no one was ever comfortable in their presence. They didn't make good dinner guests because they bore with them all the concerns that God has for this planet. And yet, time and time again, they were ignored. Message givers, proclaimers that God was going to work something new, that God was going to bring punishment, so you repent. All of these expressions of concern, which is what God does every time he threatens. Do you realize this? We've said it before, but God is like a good parent when he threatens. It is not because he hopes that he gets to punish you. It's because he hopes he won't have to. So that when Jonah goes around in Nineveh and he says, 40 more days, and this city will be blown up, and then laughs. <laughs> yes. Thanks, Reese. Reese's paying attention, kind of. But you know what? The people heard the response and they responded. They heard the warning and they responded. And God does not bring about the calamity that he had promised. And, you know, Jonah's mad about it. But see, God says, I have concern for that great city. I have concern for the Ninevites. We're told over and over again, the prophet Moses, like one who was going to come later, this first Moses said, he was raised up. He was raised up because God heard the groaning and the cries of his subjected people, his slaves in captivity. And he was concerned about them, so he raised up a deliverer. Over and over again, God spoke, but over and over again, he was ignored. It was like President Obama giving his address about his executive order on illegal immigration reform. And the networks decided that it would be better to show Two and a half men and broke girls and alias because, well, the American people would rather hear that than from their president. And the history of humanity has been something like that. That God has spoken, but people have continued to put out the do not disturb sign on their doors. They've put from our first parents... No trespassing signs. There are parts of our lives that we just as soon you'd leave us alone with. We don't want you to bother us. We want this to be ours. And we've been saying it over and over and over and over again. And so we're told Jesus was finally sent into the world as a final proclamation. God said, okay, then I'll come there. I'll step into the fray. I will step into enemy-occupied territory. I'll violate the no trespassing sign for their own good. 
And now we have someone to listen to. Chesterton said this, describing Gilbert Keith Chesterton, the writer and editor and pop philosopher. He wrote this probably in the 30s, a story called The Man Who Is Thursday. And he's talking about this this auburn-haired poet who would speak to these emancipated women in Saffron Park, this area of England. And he says, most of these women were of a kind vaguely called emancipated, and they professed some protests against male supremacy, yet these new women would always pay to a man the extravagant compliment which no ordinary woman ever pays to him, that of listening while he is talking. Chesterton said that I did not. His insinuation is that no woman would ever willingly listen to a man and that these supposedly emancipated women would actually listen to a man and pay him an extravagant compliment. The author of Hebrews is saying, would you be willing to pay the extravagant compliment to God himself by paying attention more to his action than to the voices in your own head? Would you be willing to pay the extravagant compliment of listening to this someone who has stepped into the world and has chosen not to remain aloof, but to put his money where his mouth is, to feel the saltiness of your tears, to feel the dismay of not knowing what's going to happen next, to put yourself in the precarious position of loving people who aren't going to love you back. To feel what it's like to have to trust the goodness of God when everything you can see and touch says maybe it's a great fiction. And God has stepped in and said, I will bear all of that. That is his speech. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's come past the no trespassing signs. Because his concern for us is great. Our lives matter to him, in other words. He's appointed this son, heir of all things. And through him, he made the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You have someone to listen to. Now, the danger, the danger is that this the speech of God that has taken on flesh, that is, we're told, a treasure house of wisdom and knowledge. We're told that the speech of God is someone that we can embrace, as Beth just read, as one who will not break a bruised reed, and he will not snuff out a flickering candle. He's tender, and he's strong, And he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In other words, until he rectifies all the things that George Carlin rightly identified as wrong, he will not falter or be discouraged. But for some reason, he waits. For some reason, he doesn't do it all at once. For some reason, he does it in a measured way and incorporates us in on the program of renovation. And he swept us up into it. And it's so very easy as we wait. It's so very easy as we're on this pilgrimage, as we're walking towards a time when all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. To forget that that's what we're doing. 
to forget to pay attention to him, to start to pay attention to everything else, to start to imagine that what our kids become is what we ourselves will be. That the performance of our kids on tests or at church or who they marry or how well they do in sports or how elegant, lovely, and well-off they are, that will be what makes us. So you start to compare yourself. I heard a woman recently, Sarah something or another. I don't know how to say her last name, so I'm not going to try to. I'll just say Sarah something or another. She's a priest, so be scandalized by that, from Houston. (laughs) And she, quoting another fellow who's got a parenting philosophy that is not PG, she alters it and she says, you know, there are all these parenting strategies. There's the tiger mom strategy where you need fierce, traditional discipline, hard boundaries, clear expectations, not firmy self-esteem building, let people accomplish something and then they'll, then they'll matter in the world. There's attachment parenting. You keep your kids in this constant state of nurture. There's permissive parenting. There are all these different schools. There's French parenting. Their French kids eat more than Americans because they don't snack all the times and they don't, the French don't run their lives around their kids. All these different strategies. And this one author says, well, here's a new strategy that everyone needs to adopt if you're a parent. It's called the calm the heck down strategy. Are you worried that you're little child is going to kindergarten and can't read as well as all the other children at kindergarten. They can't, none of them can read. Calm the heck down, he says. Are you worried that your child doesn't show the same interest in learning or in the church, the same spiritual interest as, as that little girl over there who's memorized the whole Bible already and she's two? Calm the heck down! Are you worried that your kid doesn't seem as well adjusted or does embarrassing things out in public that make you look bad? Calm the heck down. There's two rules to this parenting philosophy. Calm the heck down. And the second one is just like it. Calm the heck down. Now, how could you do that, though? How could you do that? How could you calm down unless you knew there was someone that you could listen to who had a louder voice than the voices that whisper to you that what happens with my kids is a reflection of me. If I'm going to matter, they must matter. In a world that I can't control, if there's no stronger voice out there than the voices in my head or the voices on Twitter that make me think somehow I'm missing out on something, the posts of other people's lives, the highlight reels of their lives when I know what's so crummy and ordinary about my own life, the unpicturable meals that I eat. (laughs) Photographable, you know what I mean. I don't ever eat a meal that could be photographed and put on a Pinterest page. Never! What a loser I am. (laughs) How many ever puts a peanut butter and banana sandwich on Pinterest? But you know what? Calm the heck down. 
Because the Son of God has come into the world and says, here's why you matter. Not because you have more followers. Not because you've curated a self that other people admire, even though you know good and well it's not true. Not because you've made your kids into something. You matter because you image the one who is the exact radiance of God's being, the one who breathed the world into existence and now is breathing its renewal into existence. And he has said, I'm going to remake you into my image. That's why you matter. Listen to me. Listen to the son who has spoken the final and authoritative pronouncement of God. You want to verify and justify yourself? You want to figure out some kind of way to be good enough, to make enough, to be sterling and shiny and glimmery enough? To that, God says, if you'll listen to me, you'll learn that after Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. You can imagine Jesus in common parlance with the microphone And after he's provided purification for sins, he drops it and walks off the stage. He drops the mic. Nuff said. Says our homie, Jesus. But the purification of all the things that defile you can't be undone by you. Wow, what an amazing thing to get to listen to that he has finished. He sat down the purification of sins in God's final spectacular speaking through his son means that every way that you have failed and every revealing thing that the mirror shows up to you when you get quiet and still and you realize what kind of person you really are, You realize the flimsiness of your commitments. You realize the injuries that you've caused others and the ways that you've been selfish, the ways that you've been mean and lusty and greedy, the ways that you've let your heart be cordoned off from other people because you didn't want to be bothered, the way you turned a blind eye to need because you didn't want to give up something of your own. And you carry this with you and to think that God's final speech that we can listen to says, you're purified. You're a mildew-stained bathroom. And God has brought his Clorox to bear to get all the germs, to get all the stains completely removed. And it's so completed that he sat down now at the majesty, the right hand of God. You have someone to listen to And your life matters because of what he's done, not because of what you'll do. You also have someone to expect from. You have someone to listen to if you listen to the speech of God who has spoken finally through his son. But you also have someone to expect from. You know, one of the hardest things I imagine, some of you have been at this Christianity thing for a long time. Some of you are trying to decide whether you want to do it. Some of you have been at it for just a short time. But it gets easy to stop expecting much because you've expected before and it didn't happen the way you wanted it to. Or you just get ground down. Your life gets busy, it gets full, 
you stop expecting and you start to wonder, does it matter to do any of the things that I'm doing? Does it matter to go to church or to crack a Bible or to give a gift or to serve the poor? Does it matter to pray in any kind of devoted way? Do any of these things matter? And it's easy to stop expecting. But we're told we've got to keep paying careful attention and not to ignore this great salvation, that there really is someone to expect from, and that someone is actually sustaining all things by his powerful word. The whole problem is we can't always see what he's up to. Chesterton in another place said this about the sustenance of God in his creation. All around us, each morning we wake up, the sun has arisen. God, we're told in the Bible, has been up all night while we slept. And we could easily think that God has set into motion these natural processes where now God is sitting in a barca lounger and he's scrolling through the cable TV lineup. And he's laughing when Bruce Almighty comes on and he chuckles. Ha, 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 look how they've envisioned me. And, and then he weeps when he sees keeping up with the Kardashians. And then he's, he's just flipping through and he sees a NASCAR race. And he's like, what in the world? What, why? They're watching cars go around a track. My image is what? And just kidding, NASCAR fans. And he's just sitting there because he doesn't have anything to do anymore. Because, you know, he's a clockmaker. He set everything into motion and the... Courses, stars are in their courses, and the solar system does its spinning and rotating and revolutioning. And all he's got to do is sit around and watch TV. But he says, what if? And this is an important thing to think about when you think about God sustaining all things by his powerful word. This Jesus that we're hoping, who will not falter, who will not discourage till he fixes everything. He is actively sustaining everything, even in this moment. The breath in your lungs, the thought processes in your mind where you're wondering who, who the Broncos play this afternoon right now and you're wondering why is he going on and on and when, when are we going to get to eat? All of these processes, all these physical and chemical processes going on in you right now are being sustained, we're told, by this Savior who has spoken, who is coming into the world and now is ruling as king over the earth. But he says, what if God each morning has the sun come up because he just delights in saying to the sun, do it again. And at night when the moon comes out and the stars make their appearance against the black of the sky, he says to them, do it again. And in that sense, he's got the, the freshness, the exuberance of youth, where little kids have this unending penchant for wanting the same things done over and over and over again, and they'll just keep saying, do it again, do it again, do it again, until their parents nearly die. I watched a mother here the other day, nuzzling on her son's neck. He leaned into her, she would kiss his neck, and he would screech and squeal and giggle and laugh until he had to get away, and then he would say, do it again, and he'd lean his neck back in. And he did this 50 times, and she kept on doing it. Until she nearly died. We had to call the ambulance. But you see, he says, and it's helpful to remember when you look out, when you look around, 
that this God that we cannot see all of what he's up to is actively sustaining everything, every moment. His speech tells us that he's sustaining all things by his powerful world, by his powerful word, and that all things are going to be his inheritance. This is why we have something to expect from him, because we matter so much that the important thing to him about what he gets when it's time for the inheritance to be divided up is you. We have a a friend whose father died, and he carries in his pocket a memento, an emblem, a physical artifact of his father's care. It's very important to him. It's a money clip that his dad always used. And that money clip is a sign to him, something that was valuable, this father's care, this father's generosity. And every time he touches the clip, when he goes to get his own money out, he can think of his dad. He can be reminded of his father's action in his life. And to think that the physical artifact for God in skin For Jesus, the inheritance that he will get is us. That he'll be excited that he gets to be in eternity with us on a new world that he has repaired with us. We must not ignore this. We must not ignore this. And if we're going to expect from him, here's what we can start to do. We can start to open ourselves up in the places where we put up no trespassing signs. This week, Elizabeth Painter, a beloved member of our community, graduated from Faith to Sight. Her long season of abysmal misery was, was over. But there were two stories told of her that I think were intriguing. One, she went to a lady's mother who was in a hospital bed, a woman who had never come to know Christ. And Elizabeth, says Lori Craig, Elizabeth tricked my mom into praying for her. She'd say, Inga, I'm going to give you a hug. And she'd give her a hug, and then she'd squeeze her tight, and she'd pray for her while she's in the hospital bed, while she had her in an embrace, while Inga's going, why aren't you letting me go, woman? And then the next time they came to visit Inga, Lori's mom, Elizabeth said, I'm going with you. And it was hard for Elizabeth to get out. She had many ailments and many physical maladies. But she went, and she was an evangelist, and she would not ignore the great salvation that had been entrusted to her. And so she sat at the hospital bed of Inga, Lori's mother, I suppose in her 80s. And she said these tender and consoling words to her. Inga, you don't want to go to hell, do you? (laughs) And Inga paid the most careful attention, therefore to what Elizabeth began to say. And at the end of their conversation, Inga, who had a certain fear lit in her, because she started to realize what all thinking people will realize is, if this Jesus really is God's speech in the world, and if he really is the judge of all men and the way to the Father, then to ignore him is to invite your own peril, to receive him, is to be welcomed into the heart of things. And Inga was welcomed into the heart of things with a face painted with tears of joy as she that day 
with the starting conversation of you don't want to go to hell, do you? Embrace Jesus as her Savior. And this same Elizabeth, worn down, who lived by faith and not by sight, who did not receive the things that had been promised to her. Her body never worked right, and her mind didn't work right a lot either. But she told Laura, you know what you've got to do? You've got to daily surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit, who is God's speech now. The personalized presence of Jesus who takes what's from him and makes it known to us. You take away the no trespassing signs, in other words, you see. We open ourselves up and say, I'm expecting from you, Jesus, make something of me. Let me be a hospitable habitation for your life in mine. Undo what's needing to be undone in me. Fortify my faith. You open yourself up. There's nothing off limits. Please tamper with me in the ways that I need. Otherwise, I'm going to be the author, not of my best hope, but of my demise. Let your trustworthy speech wash over me like a warm shower. We have someone to listen to and someone to expect from. I share this as a closing point. I got an email a while back, several years ago actually, from a friend who's an attorney. And he sent it to me and several pastors, and he said, I'm sitting here while it is necessary for me to complete five responses to motions for summary judgment. And y'all's parlance, I'm a southerner after all, that's five sermons. They are due tomorrow. Again, in y'all's parlance, that's Sunday. And my responses relate to a 3 a.m. case, i.e. a case a lawyer thinks about at 3 in the morning. And he says, my little girl, my middle child, has just come down to ask for dinner. Oh, well. The words of the hymn, O love that will not let me go, just came to mind. Out of nowhere. I do not know why. As you know, it was written by George Matheson. He wrote it while blind when he was 40 and five minutes after the marriage of his sister who had cared for him. This according to Wikipedia. I love that line. His fiancée had decided she could not live with a blind husband, and his sister's marriage, no doubt, caused him to reflect on his own unrequited love. He comes back to the present day and says, Our boy just came down and asked whether he could practice his trumpet. I said yes because I'm a good dad, or perhaps I am simply not abusive. I do not know. Our littlest is watching TV because, candidly, she's too lazy to shake a stick at a snake. Anyway, I simply share with other strugglers the unknowable work of God. George Matheson would write a hymn in five minutes that would minister 140 years after the fact. He no doubt wondered whether it was worth it to live. And then he wrote a hymn. And then it would make a grown man weep while listening to Old MacDonald had a farm on a trumpet. He wrote lines about his blindness and the flickering torch and how he yields his blindness to God. Unbelievable. The Holy Spirit would minister to a man in despair and then he would minister in the most utterly mundane time and place years and years later to me with the same words. Now Jane is making tacos and jello 
Since fire is not involved, I assume the jello will be okay. Now the boy is playing Ode to Joy. I am not making any of this up. God exists, and he is good. Thank you all for what you do. Let's remember that it matters what we do, even if we do not live to see it. We have someone to listen to who has spoken. We have someone to expect from. And we have a lot of someones to help us to keep doing this. Martin Luther, in his suffering, would sometimes get mad at people, accusing them when he was suffering most mentally or most physically. He would accuse them of not praying for him enough. So valuable did he think the prayers of the saints were for his continuing faith. Because he knows that we're in the midst of a pilgrimage. We're in the midst of walking along Trusting what we can't see. Trying to focus on him who has come into the world, not on what the world is coming to. Will you help each other? Will you help each other to remember to listen to Jesus? Will you help each other by praying for each other and reminding each other there's something worth expecting from this Jesus? Don't ignore this great salvation. Keep looking what has come into the world. Let's pray. And if you will, pull out your bulletins. There's a prayer on the second panel that you'll pray in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we need you to make us attentive to you. Let your voice be the loudest we hear. And we ask that you would hear us as we make our confession to you. For all the ways that we've put up no trespassing signs. But we want you to speak over those. We want you to undo us and to change us and to heal us. So hear our prayers. Merciful God, we confess we have failed to be an obedient church. What? They put different prayers? (laughs) Well, I have two different bulletins, apparently different prayers. Okay. I didn't realize this. Let's try again. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have refused to hear the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. And free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you'll take just a moment to silently confess.